subject that we're going to be covering is, is discipling others in evangelism. We'll talk uh, a little bit more about what that even means here in just a moment. But I wanted to open up by, by telling y'all a story. Um, I have a friend whose name is Isaac, and he was recalling this story one time. He was traveling with a, with a pastor of his, and they walked onto the airplane, and it was one of those that had three seats on one side, three seats on the other. It was just him and his pastor. And um, so they get up to their two seats, and they had a middle seat and an aisle seat. And then on the window seat, there was just this stranger. So Isaac and this pastor walk up, and the pastor wanted the aisle seat, and so he forced Isaac to sit in the middle seat. Arthur was in the window seat, and um, they get settled in. They get buckled in. All of the instructions from the, uh, uh, from the flight attendants have, have already been finished. And um, the, the pastor, he leans forward over to Arthur, the stranger, and he says, hey, my friend Isaac is going to share the gospel with you. <laughs> and so you can just imagine, uh, you're just sitting there, and then somebody leans over and says, all right, they're going to share the gospel with you. And so you're kind of forced there to share the gospel. Um, this is one way that you can disciple someone in evangelism uh, by literally forcing them into it. But there are maybe some more tactful ways um, and kind ways to disciple others in evangelism as well. And so hopefully this morning um, we can give you a few of those ways. Before we, uh, before we think about that, though, I want to ask you all a question. We've, talk, we've touched on this a little bit in our class, but I want to ask you all, uh, what, what motivates our evangelism? There's not just one answer, but what are, what are ways that we are motivated to share the good news of the gospel? Yep. Andrew says, so that others may be saved, salvation, so the desire to see those who are dead be brought to life. That's probably our chief motivation. Any others you think of? Yes. What's your name? Awesome. Glad you're here, Elizabeth. Mm. Amen. Elizabeth says obedience. We are motivated because the Lord Jesus commands us, and so we should desire to obey him. So again, at various points throughout our teaching series, we've considered practices and methods for our evangelism, but we've only on occasion considered the various means of motivation and I think motivation is, is incredibly important because at the end of the day, if we're not motivated to do something, we're probably not going to do it. As we talked about in the gospel section, and as Andrew noted, God's grace to sinners like us serves as the primary motivation for our evangelism. The fact that we've been saved, that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's light is motivation that we should seek others. We should seek for others to be transferred there as well. But I want to give you one more uh, me, uh, means of, of motivation for us um, as we move to our subject this morning, discipling others in evangelism. And it's this, the joy of helping others to love and follow Jesus more. Yes, evangelism is the purposeful sharing of the gospel uh, with non-Christians, but it's also a spiritual discipline, to Elizabeth's point, that we're commanded uh, to share the gospel, so we must obey. It's obedience. And so, um, Though we, are, though we are called to obey, there is also this sense in which um, it, it's a spiritual discipline that we have to, we have to work out in our own lives. Um, and this will lead to greater love for Christ, for his church, and for those who are without the good news of Christ and his church. So if we approach evangelism kind of just like a blunt instrument that we force people into doing, 
they're never going to have the right zeal or the right motivation. They're never going to have the steam to continue as they should. But if we approach evangelism with a desire to proclaim the good news of Jesus while building up other brothers and sisters in the faith, I trust that God's spirit will fill us with the right motivation, the joy-filled motivation to continue sharing the gospel. So this morning, as we think about this topic, it might feel a bit odd to have a class on how to disciple others, how to evangelize. It's kind of like an instruction manual that teaches you how to read another instruction manual. But if you can grasp this one concept, helping others to love and follow Jesus more, as we disciple others in evangelism, we are simply helping them to love and follow Jesus more by causing them to obey Christ's commands and causing them to just have a deeper burden for those who are lost. And so if we can just think about that one point, I trust that uh, this time will bear fruit with God's help. So as we think about that, as we get into the material, let's pray and, and ask God for his help for us. Oh God, we are, we are wholly dependent upon your spirit to, to cultivate within us a heart that has compassion for the lost. And so God, we ask that you would do that through the power of your spirit and by the, the commands of your word. God, we ask that this time, this morning would not be in vain, but we're wholly dependent upon you for that to happen. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So in order to get some handles around what it looks like to disciple others in evangelism, what better place to look than the example of Jesus? If you look at your handout there, you'll see that we're going to imitate Jesus by looking around, looking up, and looking out. You notice there on the second point, we do not imitate Jesus by being looking up, but by looking up. So you can strike that word out of there. It's a little typo. So picture this. You're standing in the middle of a grocery store. You've got Honey Nut Cheerios. You've got Tostitos Scoop type chips. You've got Skippy Crunchy Peanut Butter. Not smooth, crunchy peanut butter. Your friend or your spouse, they call you. They say, hey, we need some food for dinner. Can you pick some up? To which you respond, hey, I'm sorry. It's, it's too much out of the way. I can't, I, can't, I can't do that for you. That's ridiculous. You're standing in the middle of a grocery store, right? All you have to do is look around. I want us to think about evangelism similarly in these ways. There's times when we feel like discipling others or being engaged in evangelism that we have to really go out of our way or that we have to carve out all of this extra time in our schedules. But I want to encourage you, exhort you to say that sometimes all we have to do is just look around us. Like standing in the grocery store, when someone asks you for food, you just say, oh, let me look around. There's food at my disposal. I can get some crunchy, skippy peanut butter. And so why not feast on the low-hanging fruit first? There are certainly times when we do need to go out of our way to disciple others, to be engaged in evangelism. But again, let's think about this low-hanging fruit. So in the Gospels of the New Testament, we see essentially four different groups of identifiable people that surround Jesus during his ministry. We see the crowd, we see the 72, we see the 12, and we see the three. Jesus often took advantage of circumstantial proximity, proximity to these groups to disciple them in evangelism. So the crowd was the group of people that witnessed Jesus' public ministry and miracles. You can think of instances like the feeding of the 5,000. After this group, we learn of the 72 disciples or the 70 disciples from Luke 10. After the 72, many of you know Jesus had a more intimate group known as the 12, these 12 disciples. 
These were those that were buffoonish at times, and they often failed to fully understand Jesus's teachings and, and what his purpose was on earth. But these special men, sans Judah, were going to be used by God to build his church upon Christ's ascension to heaven and following his resurrection from the dead. Within that 12, we may remember that Jesus had an even more intimate relationship with three specific disciples, Peter, James, and John. These were ones that he invited to um, join him in very kind of special circumstances. Think about the transfiguration. Um, you can think about when Jesus was going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his arrest and crucifixion. He invited Peter, James, and John to join him in prayer there in the garden. So as an exercise this morning, I want to think about where these categories may fall in your own life. Think about the crowd around you. Think about who the 72 might be in your life, the 12, the 3. These don't have to be specific numbers, meaning you don't have to have a specific 12, but I want you to think about them as just different blocks in the, round a world, in the world around you. Perhaps your crowd is your workplace, the people you see at your local grocery store, the, the neighbors around you. These are people that you share commonality with in your setting. And if you see them or interact with them, you could easily engage in conversation. You probably have at least something in common, even if it's just your setting. Think about your 72. Perhaps this is your church or your workplace. If you work with a, a smaller staff or a club or social organization you're a part of, you're likely on a first name basis with many of these people, even if you never spend intense amounts of time with them. Think about your 12. These are your closest friends, those that um, you most intimately associate with. And then even within that 12, you recognize there's three. This may be your spouse or family or your very closest friends. Now, obviously, this metaphor breaks down a little bit because it assumes that we're Jesus. <laughs> but I want us to think about it as an effort of imitating what and how Jesus took advantage of his time with these people in order to disciple them in evangelism. Jesus' ministry to the crowd was concerned with their salvation. So within the crowd around you in your neighborhood or your workspace, spend time intentionally getting to know folks. If you're going on a walk, maybe you interact with the neighbor who's mowing their lawn. As you get to know them, you might identify those who are other believers. There's, there's believers who are out there that are within our crowd that we may not even know but as we rub shoulders with them, as we come, in, come into close contact with them and get to know them, well, then we can disciple them in evangelism by uh, inviting them over to our house and praying for the lost that's in the rest of our crowd. And so as we identify these people, we can follow the example of Jesus by being concerned about the salvation of this large group of people around us together. Now think about your 72. Jesus sent out these disciples to proclaim the gospel, to prepare his way for ministry. For us, let's think about our church. If you're here this morning at our equipping class, it means that you're probably more involved than most in church. It means that you probably know a good number of folks at the church. And so because of that, uh, there are specific ways, strategic ways that you can get to know other people, even in the life of our church, and disciple them in evangelism. If you're a college student, think about some who may be younger in the faith college students or youth students. Come alongside them. Invite them whenever you engage in evangelism. If you're a young parent, think about inviting uh, your, your kids' friends over to the house and invite them into the gospel ministry that you do even with your own kids. Include them in on your family devotional times. If you've been walking with the Lord for decades, 
I mean, there's so many young Christians within the context of our churches that would be well served by you simply initiating, spending time with them, encouraging them in the ways that you've been able to share the gospel with others, how the Lord has encouraged you in it. You can even share ways in which you failed in evangelism. Sometimes that gives us heart because we recognize that uh, we too uh, often fail. And so hearing that someone who's been walking with the Lord for a long time has also failed um, recognizes that there's, there's grace that goes around. Now, as we get down to the 12 and to the three, we recognize that Jesus often taught these disciples new truths about the kingdom of God separate from the crowd. How might you be discipling people close to you in your circle of 12 or three in evangelism? Presumably, you already spend much time with these people. How might you capitalize on that time by sharing with them the hope of the gospel? How might you capitalize on that time by asking them to pray for you as you desire to share the gospel with others? or by inviting them to share with you as you go out. I remember being in St. Louis one time with my dad when I was a teenager, and my dad was sharing the gospel with some random dude that we had met on the street, and um, I, was, I was standing there. I was just passively kind of listening, and just as a young guy, I like looked up to my dad. I was like, oh, man, this is awesome what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, I heard my name called, and I kind of awoke from my super, and I heard my dad say, and yeah, now my son's going to pray for you. And I was like, whoa, okay. Um, but in that moment, my dad was inviting me. He was, he was discipling me. He was inviting me into this opportunity to pray for spiritual things. Yes, this man had physical needs, but because my dad had just shared the gospel with him, we recognized that ultimately his greatest need was a spiritual need. And so in that moment, I had the opportunity to pray that the Lord would cause his heart to respond to the gospel that he had just received. In this simple moment, I was just standing there. I wasn't really paying attention, but my dad intentionally asked me to pray for this man so that I could think wisely about how to, um, to pray for the, the lost soul of another. That's just a simple way that we can disciple others in evangelism. And by shifting conversations towards spiritual things with those close to us, we are discipling them in those ways because we're causing them to prioritize spiritual things. So one quick word of uh, caution before we move on to imitating Jesus by looking up. And that is, you see there, the, the second point in your handout, don't be guided by the world's standards. As helpful as it can be to consider this analogy of the crowd, the 72, the, the 12, and the 3, the important piece is to recognize that depth always matters far more than breadth. It's kind of like a wave barrier. Even if that wave barrier surrounds a city for miles in length, if it's only a foot high, it doesn't do a whole lot. It needs to have more depth. It needs to have that ability to, to guard off the waves. In discipling others in evangelism, we are wise to invest deeply in a few rather than just try to spread ourselves thin. So I don't want you to get lost in this metaphor of the crowd, the 72, the 12, and the 3, and to just neglect that you might have several people who are around you that you can devote intense amounts of time to and trust that even if it's a couple of folks, the Lord will use that and honor that in his timing. After all, we don't operate by the world's standards which tell us that more numbers equal more success. I just recently learned about seed dormancy. I'm sure all of you know about seed dormancy, but I just learned about it uh, last night. So if you want another case for intelligent design, check this out. Certain types of seeds adapt 
to their ecological conditions, and they won't germinate until those conditions are preferable for their survival. Isn't that fascinating? God has placed within these seeds the ability to recognize when the ecological conditions will be preferable for them to germinate so that they can continue to survive. That's why plants won't germinate when it's going to be cold outside, when the ground might freeze. In our own gospel ministry, we must recognize that it is God who gives the growth in God's timing. He knows what conditions are best in causing the seed of the gospel to germinate. Our responsibility is simply to be faithful with a few. So I hope you hear that as an encouragement. Sometimes uh, we can be so discouraged in our evangelism because we're rejected or because we don't know how somebody might respond or maybe we get the chance to share the gospel with a stranger and then we never see them again. I hope that you rest well at night recognizing that the God of the universe knows and he uh, knows who are his and he will cause that seed to seed of the gospel to germinate when he sees fit. Before we move on to um, imitating Jesus by looking up, I want to pause and see if you have any questions. Any practices that you've found particularly helpful in your own life that you've done or that somebody's done for you in discipling you in evangelism? Yes. Elizabeth said practice. In the words of Alan Iverson, we're not talking about a game, we're talking about practice. <laughs> Somebody caught that reference, sorry. I'm a sports guy. Practice, absolutely. The more we practice, the more ability, the more skill, the more tact we have. That's right. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? Zach said that um, one, thing, one of the things that was particularly helpful and impactful for him is when um, an older college student one time invited him and some few others to go out and actually do evangelism. He also noted that God's word says a lot about evangelism, uh, which we know, and so taking time to not just read God's word, not just to be hearers only, but to be doers also of the word, as uh, James says, and so um, taking time to read God's word and then be compelled to actually go share. So that was good. Well, let's move on to imitating Jesus by looking up. To transition to this next section, um, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. 
Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. <clears throat> and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. What's the first instruction that Jesus gives here after saying the harvest is plentiful? Say it louder, Taylor. Pray. Pray earnestly. After seeing the crowds for who they really are, numerous, harassed, helpless, Jesus instructs his followers to pray. He doesn't first say to get practical. He doesn't tell them to go read books on evangelism. He doesn't even tell them to immediately go and evangelize. He instructs them to pray. Prayer is action. So as we continue to consider how to evangelize the non-Christian, strategies and tips, do's and don'ts, don't forget to look up and submit your efforts to the Lord. He's the one whom, if we labor without him, our labors are in vain. As John Calvin once said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And so one of the best ways that we can disciple others in evangelism, that is to help them love and follow Jesus more to increase their faith, is to point them to the one on whom they must be dependent in faith through prayer. For any of you sports fans out there, imagine you were gifted a front row seat to your favorite sporting event. Maybe it's Wimbledon, as we talked about last week, or the NBA finals are going on right now, go Bucks, Or maybe it's uh, Simone Biles at the Olympics, um, her, her gymnast genius. Maybe you're a theater junkie and someone gifts you main row, front-facing seats to Hamilton at the Walton Arts Center. You'd be absolutely thrilled, right? Well, my friends, I have good news for you. We have front row seats to something even better, an intimate prayer that Jesus shares with his Father. We literally get a front row seat to watching Jesus pray to his Father. Flip over a few Gospels to John chapter 17. Here we see that Jesus is going to pray for his disciples. So in this prayer, we see that Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then in verses 20 to 26, he shifts to pray for those who are future disciples. In this prayer, Jesus models faith in God's providence to sanctify those who are his and then to unleash them for further gospel ministry. Notice a few things that Jesus prays for his disciples. Look there in verse 11. Jesus prays that God would keep them in his name. In verse 15, Jesus prays that God would keep them from the evil one. In verse 17, Jesus prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. 
And in verses 20 to 26, he even prays for those who are not yet disciples, but will come to believe. In our evangelism, we disciple others well when we model prayer like this to them. Before you hit the street to evangelize with somebody you are discipling, spend time praying with them that you would have confidence and comfort in the God who keeps you, the God who sanctifies you, the God who keeps you from the evil one, and the one who even guarantees the efficacy of our gospel proclamation because he knows those who are his, even if they haven't yet professed that belief. And just as a a quick note, this prayer was obviously heard publicly since we have it here and recorded in John's gospel as we talked about. We have this front row seat in John 11, 41 through 42 at Lazarus's resurrection. We see another instance where Jesus was fine with public prayer that was heard by others in order to teach them, to disciple them how they should pray. Though we don't publicly pray in order to be seen or heard or to receive affirmation from others, or at least we shouldn't pray for that reason, Jesus was not afraid of praying publicly, knowing that others would overhear him, so that they could be discipled in how and what to pray for. In our church's own corporate prayers, our prayers of praise, our prayers of confession, our pastoral prayers, do you regularly join in prayer with us? but also intently listen so that you might learn how to pray as our our shepherds, our elders, those who are aspiring to to ministry, labor as they seek the spirit in what and how to pray for for us as a church body. I know that sometimes it can get some, it can take some getting used to to listen to corporate prayers that are a bit longer and maybe feel scripted at times, but I assure you the person that's leading that, that time of prayer has really spent engaged time with the Lord beforehand because they want to think wisely about how can we shepherd this body? How can we disciple others to pray in such a way that they prioritize spiritual things in such a way that they clearly have deep intimacy with the Father um, and so that they even know what, what types of things could it be good to pray for? So I just encourage you as you listen to those prayers to Recognize that not all prayer has to look like that. In fact, there's, there's many places of spontaneous prayer in the Christian life. Um, but to also just receive the, those corporate prayers as a gift that um, as people lead you in that, you can, you can adopt um, some of those means and those methods of prayer. Second, you see there on your handout that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, even as we just talked about. So we're going to flip back again to... The Gospel of Matthew, so flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Many of you know this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. I wish we had time to dig dig into the depths of this marvelous prayer, but for our purposes, I simply want you to note that Jesus teaches his disciple to prioritize spiritual things in their prayers before he moves to physical things. In the first petition, he instructs his disciples to hallow the name of the Lord. I don't know about y'all. I don't typically use hallowed in my normal vocabulary, but it simply means, um, it's kind of an archaic word that simply means to, to, to make holy. In petitioning God to be holy, to, for his name to be hallowed, we are expressing a desire to personally treat God as holy that we would give him the right reverence and respect that he deserves. We also desire 
that others would see him in this way when we pray this way? Does a desire for God's holiness to be upheld permeate your thinking? When you see evil in the world, the mistreatment of women and children, the prevalence of sexualized media, when someone gossips, do you immediately recoil? Because this is evil that's happening when really we want God's name to be holy amongst all the peoples of this earth. Genuinely praying, hallowed be your name, expresses a deep, deep concern for God's holiness and a deep hatred for what is evil. In teaching Jesus' disciples to pray this way, and by virtue teaching us to pray this way, he is preparing our hearts with the right motivation for gospel ministry. Because evangelism flows out of a desire to see God's name be holy and to be recognized as holy even by those who do not yet profess his name. And so if that's our motivation, we can take solace knowing that Jesus is with us. Next, Jesus teaches them to pray for God's kingdom to come. Crying for God's kingdom to come is to rightly recognize the supremacy of his rule and his order over us. It means that we long for God to bring all people under his dominion. It's a verbal declaration that this world is not our home, that we are foreign citizens. We're simply awaiting our heavenly extradition. But in the meantime, we are to have a kingdom mindset, which will cause others to have uh, priority in their evangelism so that they too can become citizens of this heavenly kingdom. So that when the Lord Jesus, the, the reigning king returns, that he can extradite all of those citizens that are his. Third and finally, Jesus modeled a life of dependency on God in prayer. Before making the crucial choice of picking his 12 disciples in Luke chapter 6 verses 12 and 13, the text records that Jesus spent all night in prayer. The next section is him picking his disciples, but the night before, he literally stayed up all night. You can imagine Jesus, literally the the dew from the mountains would have soaked his cloaks. That's how long he was up there praying. The sun had turned to the moon and then back into the sun again. Before this decision, Jesus, though he is God in his humanity, recognized that he needed to be dependent upon the Father. And so he recognized that I must seek the Lord before this big decision. He clearly felt that he could not live his life apart from dependent prayer to the Father. And if the eternal Son of God felt this way, How much more should we? Before we go out to evangelize, we must go down on our knees to pray. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we see this example further corroborated. In Matthew 14, 23, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he goes up on a mountain to seek the Lord's Lord's face in prayer before engaging in ministry in Gentile regions. In Mark 1, 35, Jesus withdraws to pray by himself again. and And the text says that the disciples were looking for him. It says that they were looking for him, and and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. They couldn't recognize when all these crowds are around, these, these people who need to hear the good news of the gospel, these people who are sick and that need to be healed. It confounded them why Jesus would remove himself from these people, instead just be by himself and to commit to praying. Again, in the the eyes of the world, that just doesn't make 
much pragmatic sense. You could have the opportunity to continue teaching these people to healing dozens by spreading and and getting this large ministry, but instead Jesus withdraws to the mountain to pray. I don't know about y'all, but I think that in my flesh, if I had a, a ministry or any sort of platform that exploded in such a way that crowds of people were flocking to hear my teaching and to receive the gifts that I give, I'd probably keep hosting more events. I probably wouldn't have the self-discipline to withdraw and continue to seek the Lord's face in prayer. It's kind of like the, the musical artist who they, they create these albums and then what do they do? They tour so that they can get more people and then the more popular they become, the more they continue on these large tours across the world. Friends, the, the spiritual discipline of removing oneself from the distractions of this world is becoming increasingly more difficult. I'm convinced that one of the chief ways that Satan would, you know, even as we remember in, later in the gospel that um, Satan asks to sift Peter, he asks to, to sift the disciples, and, and Jesus says that I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I think one of the ways that Satan may try to sift us these days is to cause us to believe the lie that we must always be busy or that the more information we have access to, the, the broader our reach of ministry possibly could be. When in reality, the worst thing that Satan could see is for you to withdraw from everything, to withdraw from all the distractions, and to just fall on your face in prayer. Because he shudders to know that God is building his church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. We literally have the, the world at our fingertips with these phones. They're constantly distracting us. We have watches now that buzz even if we're not by our phone. So it's gonna take an extra measure of discipline to remove ourselves, to set these things in another room and to just earnestly seek the Lord in dependent prayer. As we saw in John 17 in Jesus's high priestly prayer, it is God who chooses and who keeps those who are his. And it's a marvelous privilege that he would choose us in our evangelism as a means to accomplish that end of, of, of reaching those who are his. But let's imitate Jesus by discipling others to recognize their utter dependence upon him to accomplish that desired end. Before we move to this final section, I wanna pause and see if you have any questions or comments from that section. What are some specific ways that we can pray for um, evangelistic efforts, either our own or others? That's good. Andrew says we need prayer for, for boldness throughout the Throughout the New Testament, we see the, the believers often commit themselves to praying for, for boldness that they may declare the message. That's another means Satan uses to discourage us, to instill fear within us, to, 
keep us from sharing the gospel that we're going to be rejected or something. And so if we ask the Spirit to embolden us, we will be less afraid. Yeah, that's good. Other practical ways we can pray for evangelism. Tell me your name again. B. B said to, to be ready. <laughs> this comes again to the idea of standing in the middle of a grocery store and um, all you have to do is look around and recognize there's all this food around you. So just be ready. You never know when you're going to encounter someone that you might be able to have a conversation that transitions towards spiritual things. Oftentimes in retrospect, you think about it and you're like, whoa, that easily could have transitioned. I don't know why I didn't do that. But if we have that mindset going in, if we're praying to the Lord to, to give us awareness, then I think we will be more ready. Maybe one more. Yeah, Bethany. Amen. That's my sister. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, Bethany, she said that we need, to, we need to pray that our hearts would be burdened. We need to pray that the gospel would capture our own hearts. This is, I mean, gosh, you think about, um, I mean, the phrase, the good news, it's, it's kind of a misnomer because it's even more than good news. It's more than great news. It's literally the best news in the world. In that book that I gave away, I can't remember who got it, Praying with Paul. One of the things that D.A. Carson says is, um, you know, if the, if the primary needs of humans were physical, then God would have sent us a physician. If the primary needs of humans were political, he would have sent them a politician. But because he recognizes that the primary needs of humans are spiritual, he sent us a savior. And so in recognizing that, it's like, wow. Gosh, the Lord in his kindness sent us somebody to save us from our sins, to unite us again with the Father. But, gosh, I mean, again, there's so many things in this world that would distract us from the, the depths, the, the beauty of that truth. And so we need to seek the Lord often, every single day, to, to capture our hearts afresh by how much grace has been given to us in salvation. That's good. I would encourage you, continue to think about specific ways that you're praying for evangelistic efforts either in your own life or with others maybe invite others into that ask others to uh, pray for you in that but finally we imitate jesus by looking out you know something i was thinking about last night as i was preparing this is that in a place like fayetteville or um, churches and towns across the south you have churches that are competing with other churches to fill their services I was at Onyx yesterday with my little sister, and we were sitting there, and we were on Instagram, and we were looking at this church's Instagram, and they just had all this cool media. They had these great dynamic videos and all these colors and graphics and stuff. This is a church there in Texas where she lives. And then we looked at a church up here in northwest Arkansas, and it was literally the same format. And um, it just struck me that there is kind of just this almost like business model that churches can adapt and they can replicate man, it works. You get people to fill your pews. Um, but in this, they, they always think about what sort of, what measure of dynamic music, what inclusive programs can we, can we include to attract people from across our town 
to fill our churches. In essence, though, these churches are simply competing to attract other Christians or those that just want some type of religious experience. We also see more and more churches popping up whose chief aim is some type of social cause. But how often do you see churches that are zealous in competing over (laughs) non-Christians, over those who are despised and rejected in this world, those who, frankly, just aren't cool? It's not often that we see Christians fighting and scrapping to be around more lost people. And yet there are lost people all around us. Even as we talked about earlier in the crowd around us, all it takes is asking God to give us eyes to see. And oh boy, he'll give us eyes to see those lost people. And so as we specifically seek to disciple others in evangelism by looking out, we can easily do this by evangelizing together to to recognize that, gosh, I mean, we should... We should have a zeal and a desire to to fight over all these non-Christians that are around us. It's no coincidence that Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs or that he called specifically 12 men to himself for a specific mission. Think about the countless situations in which Jesus was sharing with others about the kingdom of God while his disciples looked on and observed the master. I don't have any kids myself, but speaking as a former kid, I remember um, the days when I was five years old and I remember seeing my dad mow the lawn and I just wanted to get out there with my play lawnmower and just follow him. I'm sure for any of you who have kids or who are former kids like me, you can remember those times when uh, you saw your mom cooking and you asked for a play cook set for Christmas so that you could cook like your mom or maybe you saw your dad talking on the phone and so you asked for a play phone or you got your parents' old phone so that you could play phone. Not all things that we're, we learn in this life are taught. Many of the things that we learn in this life we know are just subtly caught by what we're doing. And so even as we think about discipling others in evangelism, this comes back to the application point that Zach made earlier, that sometimes if you just invite people along, you don't even have to go out of your way to specifically necessarily teach them anything. They're gonna be learning just by observing who you interact with, how you interact with them, the types of things you say, the types of things you pray for. And so this is a pretty easy ask. All you really have to do is, uh, again, notice the ways and uh, seek out ways to be engaged in evangelism in your neighborhood, your, uh, the gym you regularly go to, whatever it may be, and invite others along with you so that they can witness it and, and do it along with you. Second, we see that Jesus ministered to all kinds and types of sinners. Jesus never showed partiality in his evangelism, whether it was the wealthy or the poor, the Jew or the Gentile, the tax collector or the Roman centurion or prostitutes or families. Jesus showed no partiality in who he shared the gospel with. We must earnestly search our own hearts and consider whether we show favoritism in our evangelism and hospitality. Let me give you an example from, uh, that I heard one time from a pastor. Two families show up at a church. The first is a young couple. He's a computer science engineer. She's a medical resident at the hospital nearby. They live in a well-kempt neighborhood in an affluent part of town and they have diverse interests and dynamic personalities. The other family is a single mother with four kids. They live in the rough part of town and 
the mother doesn't have any formal education beyond high school? Which of these two families will be more likely to be engaged following a church service? Which of these two families will more likely be invited over to lunch with a member afterward? Which of these members will more likely have the phone numbers of other members who want to follow up with them after the service? I thought it was a convicting example from this pastor to just kind of probe the depths of our own hearts to kind of do the earnest heart work of trying to discern, are there certain people that I'm more intuitively attracted to and that even bleed into my own evangelism, that bleed into the the types of people that I naturally am drawn to, uh, associate with? I think we must earnestly check ourselves and recognize that as those who are not yet glorified, that is not yet made fully perfect, that we still are in a battle against our sin and a battle against the the cosmic powers of this world. And so there might be times and occasions in which our our hearts are drawn to associate with certain people over others. But if we want to be faithful in discipling others well in evangelism, we can do this by showing no partiality and seeking to have evangelistic conversations with all types of people. And honestly, the the world is often astounded by that, just as Jesus' disciples were astounded that he was speaking with a Samaritan woman. Third, play the long game. What began with a gospel message spread by 12 men, these 12 disciples, it is now extended to every corner of the globe. Jesus has given us a master class in what it looks like to play the long game. Part of discipling others in evangelism is trusting that God uses small and seemingly insignificant measures over the course of time to accomplish the building up of his church. You know, it's said that Augustine's mom, St. Augustine's mom, prayed for him for over 17 years before he finally converted. He had given himself over to all manner of sin and unrighteousness, and yet his mother continued to be on her knees and pray for his salvation day after day after day. And in the Lord's grace and kindness, many years later, the Lord sovereignly saved him. We have the opportunity of modeling long-suffering in our evangelism to those whom we disciple as we persevere in prayer, as we persevere in our evangelistic efforts to our non-believing friends, family, and neighbors. We disciple others well in evangelism when we do the hard and sometimes even unappreciated work of simply laying the foundation. Again, you think about some of those kind of one-off opportunities you have to share the gospel with a taxi driver or someone on an airplane or someone you run into in another city. They, uh, they don't respond to the gospel for whatever reason, either because the Lord has hardened their heart or uh, the timing is not right or Um, They're still mulling certain things over. The Spirit is still working in their heart. But who knows if you're simply preparing the foundation for another Christian who's going to come up alongside them a year later, five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, and who will ultimately bring gospel growth. I mean, it's crazy to think about the amount of people that a Lord willing will see in heaven who we never interacted with after a first response, um, but who somebody else came alongside and help to continue to put the gospel around them so that that ultimately they would respond. I had another pastor friend in Dallas who recounts the story of growing up in a Muslim home and his, his entire family were devout Muslims. They weren't allowed to associate with Christians in the United States. And 
um, he at his school had encountered a, a Christian teacher. And um, this Christian teacher had had conversations with him over the course of time um, when he was a young boy. And um, whenever they were about to, to move cities to a different school, he was seven or eight years old at the time. This teacher simply gave him a, uh, a New Testament. And he put it in a little box and he never touched it again. And then uh, 12 years later, or 11 years later, if I can do my math right, um, and when he was 18 years old and he was about to move off to college, he uh, picked up this box and he was thumbing through it and he found this little gospel New Testament. And um, he started to, to read it because he started to kind of come of age and wonder, you know, why, if I've been brought up in this Muslim faith, do why do I believe these things? I know that Jesus is mentioned in the Quran. Well, he's mentioned in the Gospels here as well. So let me read and see more about this Jesus character. And the Lord used his reading of that, that New Testament to, to bring him to faith. And so here this lady, just a, a simple act of discipling this young man and ultimately giving him God's word, which can make us wise unto salvation, bore fruit, even if it was 11 years later. We must be committed to playing the long game. I also want to encourage you, just as a practical note, in our own in the life of our own church, to pray for UBC's own efforts in playing the long game of ministry as we invest time, money, and energy into discipling others for ministry. Specifically, I'm thinking about our pastoral internship, what's now becoming our pastoral residency. Though I didn't do the internship program here, I did a similar one at a at a different church, and I was only there for, for five months, but this church valued the kingdom of God more than they valued the spiritual return that they would receive at their own church, that they were willing to invest that time, that money, and that energy into us eight interns that were only going to be there for five months, and then we were going to be gone. We're never going to be back at their church. I mean, possibly the Lord and his providence could take you back, but they were willing to invest that because they cared long-term about what God is doing across the world in his church. UBC's own pastoral residency is essentially set up so that residents are exposed to reading and discussions that will disciple them to think wisely and biblically about God's church and about her mission, which includes evangelism. And so you can help play a part indirectly in this by, uh, and indirectly discipling them in evangelism by regularly praying that the Lord would bless the efforts of our pastoral residency, that the seeds that are planted during their time would bear much evangelistic fruit in gospel ministry in the future, even if it doesn't provide specific return in our own community. As guys come in and they go out to other places, think about uh, the, the ways that the Lord has allowed UBC to send preachers to various churches across Northwest Arkansas. What a gift that is. And, and we trust that as they preach the word, that there's non-believers who are hearing that and who are receiving that. And so you are helping these brothers to love and to, to follow Jesus more. Think about that even as you Sometimes maybe feel like, oh man, I just want to sit in the service, but I'm scheduled to serve in the children's ministry this week. We know children's ministry always has a hard time finding more volunteers, those that help. But think about the, uh, the unruly kids and the ones who constantly can sometimes uh, just wear you out, bring energy down. But as you sit in there and you patiently labor and love those children and you share gospel truths with them, you may never see the return in your own lifetime or in your own setting and circumstance, my friends, who knows how the Lord might be using your faithful service to our own children's ministry to bear long-term, long-lasting gospel fruit in the life of our children, our biggest evangelistic opportunity here in the life of our church. And so I'd encourage y'all, play the long game by imitating Jesus and recognizing that 
through faithful gospel ministry, it can and will spread to even the very ends of the earth. Well, my friends, it's my hope that this morning you've been encouraged by God's word to imitate Jesus by helping others to love and follow him more by looking around to those in proximity to you, to look up to God in prayer and to look out to the far-reaching effects of, of gospel ministry. Before I close us in prayer, we have time for a few more questions or comments, or if you have application points you want to share, we'd love to hear those. Yeah, Josh. They're doing well by God's grace. Thanks for asking. Yeah, they recently, um, in the Lord's kindness, were able to hire an associate pastor. So at the time, my dad was the only staff pastor there. And um, they just recently, uh, with the help of UBC and funding that was given by UBC's members to uh, their church, able to hire a, an associate pastor who's going to help out with family ministries and discipleship and, and youth. So it's a huge gift. good. Anna said, you know, one of the ways we can play the long game is to intentionally invest in relationships with people to recognize that, you know, if the Lord tarries, we're still going to be here on this earth and we'll likely get to see that person again. And so uh, just take time to relationally get to know them. Think about wise ways to um, enter into conversation with them so that uh, you build that relational capital and are able to share the gospel and uh, maybe even uh, call them to repentance. Yeah. Yeah, Zoe. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Zoe said, just reflecting on intimacy with the Father will help us even in our own evangelistic efforts that gave to be uh, praying with Paul. Again, excellent reflections on um, Paul's own life, how he uh, used prayer as a means of uh, experiencing awe, intimacy with God the Father, and then how that even fueled his evangelism, his missional efforts. Um, that's an excellent resource I'd commend to you, Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. I'd read more on that. Maybe one more.
JJ says that sometimes what we think is long is uh, really just short in God's eyes. And so part of playing the long game is long suffering, steadfastness, perseverance. And JJ also noted that it can sometimes be discouraging. Again, this is, I appreciate you sharing that because obviously as a 24-year-old male who doesn't have children, I don't have this perspective. But for someone who's raised kids and you put in all this effort, this energy into discipling them, sharing with them, and then if they leave the house and they're not seeking the Lord, that can be discouraging. But um, we, we, don't ha- we don't yet have glorified eyes. And so we, we don't always know what the Lord's up to. But we can pray and keep praying for those. So speaking of, let's pray now. Oh God, we do, we do long for the day when with glorified eyes we will see that all that you have done and all that you are doing. We ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, but in the meantime, until you return, help us to be faithful to, to labor as, as intently, as wisely, and as sacrificially as we can. And God, we trust that those who are yours, you are keeping. It is not our hold of you, but your hold of us that holds us fast. And God, you already know who are yours. And so help us to engage in the hard work, the the discipline, the endurance, the the suffering, the patience of praying and sharing the gospel and playing the long game in that, not looking for immediate results. But God, we need your help in that. So help us now, even as we go. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.